0: Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Penny Red My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com And for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com Today I've got not one but two guests in the studio And not only are there two of them, they're both seasoned podcasting veterans now I have Farrell foster Lynham from episode 8 and Donald Gardner from episode 10 How's it going chaps? Yeah, good thanks Dan very well, thanks, Dan. You're you are going to be the first proper, rather than just sort of uh, a taster here and there, first proper season two guests. So you're in, a, in an esteemed position. You're at the vanguard. That's pretty. I'm so excited. Yes, you're you're blazing, you're blazing a trail. But um, I think perhaps what I'll do before um, before we crack on into the uh, into the questions is it's been six months probably since. Last, I spoke with either one of you, or six months, plus or minus, uh, a couple of weeks. Um, And in that time, has anything changed about um, the way you've done
1: gaming, or um, Uh, have you had any revelations on there? pretty much everything. Um, We finally jumped on the indie bandwagon, um, had a late renaissance, because we're so insulated from the rest of the world. And um, yeah, since we started playing Apocalypse World, everything has pretty pretty much turned uh, 180 to what? How I used to role play,
0: right? I was talking with Hamish Cameron, uh, episode twenty-five, and back in the you know the seventies and eighties, it usually it took you know six months or so for for a film and um, in, in one country to uh, to show up in New Zealand because we are pretty uh, pretty insulated with the speed of the internet. Um, you know, basically meaning that everybody gets everything at the same time. Um, it would seem that. You know everybody would be moving along sort of at the same pace, but I wonder whether um, you know, that whether being so far away and not having contact with people at conventions and, and not quite having such a large community of people to actually game with rather than just talk with on the Internet, that makes things a little, uh, a little slower. It's all very well to talk about games, but until people actually start, start playing, and the physical books become available, it's, uh, there's still a little bit of a lag there.
1: Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, Like, I look online for some reviews and stuff, but um, I don't necessarily go out and buy the games. And like you say, without conventions, um, we don't expose ourselves to other styles of play, other games, other people. So we've got the same group of people that we've been role-playing with for the last however many years playing just the same games. And it was actually from listening to um, people... On your, on this podcast, that um, sort of made me want to try some of these new stuff,
0: right? And did, did you feel the same thing, Donald, or did Farrell sort of drag you along, kicking and screaming?
2: No, no, I definitely agree. There's a, a definite interest in in these these new style of games. I'm a little hesitant to use the label indie, but uh, but certainly the more narrative driven game style, I guess. Uh, and I've read more about it. Uh, as time's gone on, and that certainly interested me. There's a lot of games that have really appealed to me, both mechanically and and as far as their their settings and even their aesthetic goes. And we've definitely embraced that more in the in the last six months. But also another, I think, another factor in the the time lag. So, and I couldn't speak for all of New Zealand, obviously, but definitely for our group. Um, but there's it's very expensive to get physical books here. Mm. Uh, shipping from the US to New Zealand is cripplingly painful mm. uh, and, and that can be a, a very significant impact on our ability to uptake new games. We, we really need to know that it's something we'll enjoy, mm. that it's something our group will enjoy and that it's worth the time and effort to get shipped from overseas.
0: Right. Um, you mentioned that you hesitated to call it uh, indie games. That's actually one of the uh, new questions from uh, season two and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it. What does the, uh, the term indie game mean to you, Donald?
2: Yeah, probably if you'd asked me a year ago, uh, I would have said, you know, it's, it's pretty much the things that aren't D&D, which is a terrible answer, but there you go. But uh, as I've become a little more familiar with the the idea of it and, and the arguments about what indie means, I mean, indie's a nebulous term when you're talking about music, let alone gaming, hmm. and, and I've only relatively recently become aware of websites like The Forge and so forth, right. um, which I've timed very badly, obviously. <laughs> uh, but the uh, I think for myself probably the the most useful definition of indie that I've come with is that it it's one that em- embraces the that two-tier distribution model as opposed to the three-tier distribution model right and and so that can be uh that can be as 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 independent as something like Apocalypse World or or Victoria where you're you know writing it at home and and producing it and and give it, delivering it straight to retailers or to the customers themselves, or it can be something as, I suppose, relatively mainstream as, say, Dungeon Crawl Classics from uh, – uh, sorry, names escaped me um, – which which is huge, but it's still using that two tier model. You know, mm. they they don't have that that additional layer of having to deal with distributors between getting their game in print and getting it out to people. Right. And I guess also tied into that is that whole uh, you know, sort of POD revolution as well. Mm. And uh, and that's definitely been a game changer as well. So to me, that's what indie means. Indie. Is more about distribution and less about aesthetic. Right. Does that it,
0: make sense? It, it sure does. I'm, I'm going to attack it from a slightly different angle for you, then, Farrell. Um, so while it's it's true that that if you, in the stricter sense of the word, if you're independent, then you know you're just dealing uh, directly with uh, with customers or consumers, depending on how you like to uh, to put it. Um, part of that, or part of not having a, a middleman, or because it gives you much more freedom to create exactly the sort of game that you want to create, and along with that. Goes this increase in the availability of publishing or so the affordability of publishing for the independent publisher, so one of the things that I was wondering about was whether this particular model allows you to be more risky with what it is that you're you 're designing because you don 't have to satisfy somebody to get it into print
1: yeah well for me, um, when I think about indie games um, ignoring the letter of it, I think when I think about indie games in the spirit of of it, um, I think about games with quite a light system and a very light setting, like all the big players like AEG and Wizards of the Coast, they're able to put out splat books with very elaborate settings, you know, hundreds of characters and maps and all that sort of stuff, whereas I think the indie games don't have that luxury, and they're they're relying on you to know the tropes and to build your own world out of it, Right. and I, I think that's one of the key definitions when I think about an indie game, and I, th- I think it actually works in its favor like um, for stuff like Apocalypse world I mean if you've seen all the movies you know you know all the, the key tropes and mm. and the things that will make it exciting and you're not having to uh, to use a predefined setting
0: it's interesting you should say that there are these assumed uh, tropes because one of the things I was um, that we discussed on episode uh, 26 with with Vincent Baker was uh, this idea that or at least he, he said that uh, apocalypse world uh, when he wrote it Um, He was writing it with people that were familiar with with role-playing in mind. And also, I would imagine, although I don't want to put words in his mouth, it means that the game can be far more about the system itself, uh, the way that you're going to help to tell those stories. And McGay Baker, episode 32, you know, we were saying that when it comes to designing a game, uh, if you're an independent publisher you can think about the type of story you want to tell and get the mechanics to help um, facilitate and encourage that, that style of play, which if you're producing for a large publisher, you may be you know, sort of manacled by perhaps, say, if you're writing for Dungeons & Dragons or White Wolf or whatever, you, know, you can only use the system that you have and you don't have the luxury of letting the system reflect on the actual type of gameplay experience that, that you want to, uh, that you want to have. So with that in mind... How have you found those style games in comparison to, say, for example, um, the example we brought up was, was GURPS, but do you find that the indie games, one of the hallmarks of them is that the system really supports or works hand in hand with the type of stories that they want to tell and they're not just purely standalone resolution systems?
1: I can't speak for uh, many games. I mean, as far as what I would consider the indie side of things, we've only really played Fiesco and Apocalypse World. But in both of those, um, what really stands out is that it's so much more narrative focused, and you're not the system just doesn't get in the way like it does in some other games. Right. Like currently, we're playing two games. We're playing um, Apocalypse World and Mage the uh, What is it? Awakening. Awakening. Yeah. You playing and the Awakening? Okay. Yeah, and they are at such opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Mage the Awakening is the most convoluted, in-depth game that I have ever seen. Right. Like the the quick reference sheet for casting a, a spell, um, a spontaneous spell is like what ten pages long or something. It's that right? a Quick yeah. reference sheet. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's nuts. Right. But yeah, in, in Apocalypse World, um, you know, you just you've got that one dice me- mechanism. And everything uh, stems from that, and it's just it just makes everything so quick and so much free, uh, more free flowing in the narrative. Right, for sure. Have you considered uh, Mage the Ascension rather than Mage the Awakening? Actually, our GM has, yeah, because <laughs> um, I think uh, he very much prefers the the older um, what's it called the older story of Mage the uh, yeah. Ascension. Right. And I must admit, I think I do too. Yeah,
0: yeah the I mean, <clears throat> the magic system, as I mentioned a couple of times, is is not super clearly defined, but it's well defined enough to to facilitate its use in the in the game in a, in a balanced fashion. But yeah, I'm, I'm different. Def- I'm definitely on board with you. I, I own The Awakening, but I've never played it. And I, one of the things that I didn't like about it was the magic system. And then the second thing was uh, was the background. So I, I haven't delved into that at all. But um, how have you uh, found Apocalypse World, Donald, in, ref- in comparison with what you guys were playing previously?
2: I, I think there's a couple of really key things. As Farrell touched on, you know, the, the lightness of the system is... is mm-hmm. Very accessible, so there there is only a single mechanic. You know, everything is resolved by this two d six roll. Nothing's resolved by the DM rolling dice. It's all in the 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 moves that the players make and the reactions that the the MC makes to them. So the system the system is is quite enlightening, but also the fact that the way the book is written is entirely an encouragement to a particular style of gaming, and so. Everything that Vincent, sorry, being a bit presumptuous, calling him Vincent, that Vincent Baker has uh, has has done in the book is all with the end goal of producing a particular style of play, and that style of play is in- incredibly engaging. So, mm. so he he instructs you to yeah. You know, there's, there's a big. Uh, have you have you read Apocalypse World? Uh, yeah, I've b- bits and pieces here
0: and there. As I was saying to. Um, I'm not sure uh, which guest it was, but I'm sort of in the process of writing at the moment, so I try not to read too many other games while I'm, I'm writing because I find that it doesn't help my uh, writing process and makes me second-guess whether I'm being original or or whether Absolutely, I'm really yep. cribbing somebody else's ideas. So I have looked at it a little bit here, more for flavour than mechanic, but
2: yeah, ahead. yeah. ahead. So but there there is the significant sections of it where he's... Expounding on the uh, the principles that the MC should follow to make the game work, and they're not uh, dryly prescriptive. It's not you know these are mechanics you must follow, but more that these are techniques and uh, premises that the MC should follow that mm. will then make the game flow appropriately. And, right. and taking those really to heart. It's it's almost like he's distilled the essence of those how to be a GM sections in in you know most role playing books and turned them into practical instructions that, if followed, even if it's not immediately apparent why you're following them, produce the uh, the gameplay as desired. It's, it's actually really interesting, and and I think that ports across really nicely to the other. Um, Apocalypse World hacks that are out there, you know your, your dungeon worlds and your Monster of the Week and Monster Hearts and so forth. Sure, and that, that, I think that's really interesting, and I'm I'm keen to see much more of it. Right, um, so change your gears completely. Then, uh, Farrell, why do you think
0: that uh, role playing games die before the story finishes?
1: Uh, for our group, um, I think the main causes for us would be. Uh, GM Burnout, because a lot of the games that we've played in the past require quite a lot of preparation on the GM's part. Um, GM ADD, when he finds a different system that he'd rather be playing. Right. Um, I think they're the two main ones for us. Uh, I think the players are always keen, but it's such a burden because there's only, in our group, I mean, there's only a couple of people that are willing to put in the time and the effort to actually run the games. I'm not one of them. But... uh, (laughs) So yeah, it's a it's a definite burden on them. So yeah. They get burnt out.
0: Right. What are you Donald, what do you reckon?
2: Yep, that that's uh that's certainly the key ones that show up in our group. Having to think about it, probably the other likely causes are a player burnout where the GM's into the system but the players not so much and we haven't really had too much of that, which which is good. And and the other big one I think is, is just real life getting in the way. Hmm. You know, it's 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 hard to find time to set aside you know a uh, 4 hour block on a on an evening on any regular kind of basis you know yeah. it's it's quite different to you know being at university and uh, having all the time in the world um, you know it's it, everything gets eaten with work and and other social things and right. so so i think that that can be a game killer as well where it's just the motivation to keep pushing that game and keep scheduling those slots just disappears which is a shame
0: yeah. Do you think it's a grass is always greener type situation? As soon as you're doing one thing and locked into something, you start seeing all these amazing possibilities in, in something else. And then you see these amazing possibilities drop what it is that you're working on and then uh, go to play that. And then all of a sudden something else you know, look, looks good. Do you think that's just like you know like a human trait that there's always something newer and better around the corner and you're always interested in it or do you think that role-playing games are actually very particular and until you find that one that matches nicely with with you as a as a GM and also with your players that you are going to keep skipping around
2: Hmm. I think you you probably hit both the, the things there and it's going to be both of those you know it's it's very easy I mean I'm i 'm running the apocalypse world game that we 're playing at the moment, and, and i 'm loving it you know it 's it's a, it's a great system i 'm really enjoying the game i 'm really enjoying what i 'm seeing the players come out with you know it 's been quite quite revelatory, but at the same time i 'm still reading lots of other things i 'm always reading role playing games and and so there is probably half a dozen other games that i 'd love to have a chance to run as well, and I have no desire to stop running Apocalypse World to run them. I'd just like to find more time in the week to run more sessions and play more things and try different games. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's a stack of, of games on my nightstand table that I'd run in a heartbeat if I had the time to.
0: Right. Yeah. That's, that's often the problem, isn't it? You know, there's just, there's just so much to to do and so little time and increasingly, increasingly less, uh, the older you get, I guess, until you retire at which point you can do what you like. But, um, <laughs> so going to, um, another question from, uh, from season two, um, if you can – I'll go with Donald first here. If you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would they be and why? And you can't choose deceased families so you get a chance to see them again. And you can't choose game designers. You can't um, – you also can't choose people that you, uh, that you currently play with.
2: Okay. So I decided to narrow things down. Sure. and And if I think about everyone in history, that's far too many people. So I went with living people. Sure. And I thought, okay, I want to play with people who are interesting, funny – quality acting abilities and that I'd like to meet in real life. Sure. So my list of four is Stephen Fry, Eddie Izzard, Patrick Stewart, and Alan Rickman. That's an interesting group of chaps, all of them English, I know. Uh, why oh, I noticed you... that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, I, but you... I think they would be spectacularly entertaining to, to sit down at a table and play with. And um, what sort of character do you think Stephen Fry would play? It would have to be a wizard, right? He, he's, he's essentially, you know, I mean, he has, he has this stunning vocabulary and knowledge of, of trivia that, that I would have thought would translate really well to the character who knows everything, has an answer for everything and has researched everything. Right. So I think, I think that would be him, you know. And then you've got, you know, sort of Eddie Izzard to, to in, inject that sort of sense of humor and, and flamboyance into things. Right. You know, uh, Alan Rickman has a has a massive range, you know, he could be the uh the anti hero all the way through to the uh to the to the comic relief type uh player. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think Patrick Stewart would it would because he has that huge background in Shakespearean acting, yes. um, which which would give him a, a huge broad range. But he's also got that that incredibly dry wit, which he doesn't always get a chance to show. And I think he'd be uh, he'd be very interesting to see as well. So so yeah, I think I think that all that all have different characters and all bring different things to the table. The only thing is, it would be terrifying to GM for them. So you you'd be the GM. I, I oh that's a good question. Boy, wouldn't Stephen Fry make a great GM? I think you probably would. What would you yeah. play? Oh. <laughs> it, it would have to be something, something uh, narrative-driven, something without too much of a plot, something where they could to you know carry their flights of fancy, and probably nothing too combat-driven because really that's that's going to be just a waste of the opportunities. Given the setting, maybe something like uh, Bookhounds of London. Um, that'd nice. be pretty cool oh yeah, yeah absolutely yeah i think that'd be actually oh, boy i've missed the incredibly obvious answer haven't i wouldn't that be a spectacular lineup for a game of victoria <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: thank sorry. you donald <laughs> but, but it really
2: would wouldn't it that'd be great it, it would
0: yeah i think that um, i think that setting apart i think that you'd have to take advantage of some over-the-top british actor acting you know that uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yes. Lots of opportunities for soliloquies and and uh, exploring complex characters, I suppose, as much as you can in a, in a role playing game. But but having them play off each other would be magical. Um, you don't think that uh, any of them would like? Um, I'm going go to go uh, to to Stephen Fry here again. Do you don't think that he would um, try and go against type and play a you know like play a, a meathead
2: or, or play a um, <laughs> you know just somebody that just wants to smash something? That's entirely possible, actually. Uh, definitely, I think it'd be hard for him to hide it, though. You know, you'd be mm. in these situations where, as a as a player, you know things that you know your character, Throg the Barbarian, doesn't. But uh, right, right. It'd, be, it'd be very hard to keep keep those, uh, you know, under control. Yes. But, uh, but I, yes. I, yeah. And as you say, you know, they're all they're all that sort of classically trained British actor, as opposed to the uh, you know, sort of the, the American method school. So yes.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, do you think that Eddie Izzard would be a would be a good player, or do you think
2: he'd be at the GM the whole time? <laughs> Boy, he, he wouldn't let you uh, live down any mistakes, I suspect. <laughs>
0: yeah, you'd get that. Yeah, I wonder if they would. Uh, I wonder if they would play off each other, like they'd give each other a hard time for their acting. Because, and I mean, I know that in my group, you know, if you if you stick your neck out too far, you know, you're you're <laughs> asking for trouble. with they with they give each other a, a hard time. So, so what do you reckon, Farrell?
1: Uh, for me, I'm going to steal Stephen Fry, because I'm kicking myself, I didn't think of him. Um, Michael Caine, he's one of my favourite actors, and I think he'd be fantastic. Uh, Will Wheaton, because he's a geek chic. And I'd really like to play with Sean Nittner after listening to his episode of Penny Red. Oh my goodness, Sean's not going to be able to fit through the door now. with the head that <laughs> So, what do you think, that? Uh, what would you play? Uh, aside from uh, Victoria, it would probably have to be Fiasco. I think that would just be so much fun. In what sort of setting? Oh, any of them. I don't know. Just just whatever came up. I, I
2: don't know if you've seen Farrell uh, Will Wheaton's tabletop episode where they play the uh, I think it's uh, Saturday Night '76 or something like that. The, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the disco episode that he co-wrote. That, that'd be a good one.
1: Yeah, some, something really light-hearted like that would just go off, I reckon that'd be fantastic. And what are you and, and why particularly Michael Caine? Um, I, well, I've read some interviews with uh, from him, and he just seems like such a giving, generous actor and just a, a nice guy, as well as a very versatile actor. Like, you know, you, you look at um, uh, Zulu to Get Carter, to stuff he's done recently, to Batman, mm-hmm. and he it just covers a whole range of different things, Yeah, but he just seems just like a, a fantastic guy as well. Yeah, I'm going to pl- not that he needs a plug from me, but I'm going to plug his book. If you get a chance to read his
0: autobiography, which is called uh, What's It All About? Now he has a second autobiography, I think, which sort of covers the 20 years since first he published a book. But um, if you read the first one, which is What's It All About? You know, I think that you know you've summed him up perfectly. Like, I mean, obviously, an autobiography, you're never going to write terribly horrible things about yourself, but in the number of anecdotes that he does relate, and the way that he discusses, um, the way that he discusses acting, you know, it, you do really get the feeling that you know, like he is that, that's what he realizes that the that the job is not that important. Um, he takes it seriously, but you know that that it's you know it's there to, um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a great way to make. It's a great way to make a living because one of the one of the, the tales that he relates in it is um is fighting in korea like he was a conscripted soldier for uh in korea so i think that if you ever actually at war with people seriously trying to kill you then i think the job of acting as opposed to the job of being a, a soldier in the war zone uh must seem relatively uh, trivial and a rather nice
1: way to uh to to make a living I actually had no idea he's a combatant. I think I'm going to have to hunt down that autobiography and yeah, give it a good it's read.
2: It's well worth it. Yeah, um, and what's it all about? Um, Speaking int- of uh, of acting being a a great job, my favorite Michael Caine story is the one about Jaws 4, and right. which was a, a horrible, horrible flop. You know, it was just mm, a mm. a terrible film. Right. And uh, and a reporter on the red carpet for another film asked him, uh, asked him, you know, have you have you seen Jaws 4? What do you think of it? And uh, and he says, ah. Oh, I haven't seen Jaws 4, but I've seen the house that it built. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right, he lives in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, what was your person going to be before Stephen Fry then, Farrell?
1: Uh, it was probably going to be Felicia Day, just on the uh, same geek chic level as Will Wheaton. Right. And, and what have you liked her in, uh, the, uh, the most? I I like the guild. I like uh, most of the things that she's appeared in, like she's in Buffy and, you know, just as a a representative of geek culture, I think she's just quite interesting.
0: So there's no particular character that she played you'd like her
1: to see play in a role playing game? Oh, no, not necessarily. No, like I say, I'd like to play something like Fiasco where everybody just went all out and just played something, you know, completely wild.
0: Fair enough. So uh, how many role-playing books do you own, Farrell? And what was your first one that you bought?
1: Uh, I actually don't have a huge library. I mean, including all my um, modules and stuff, I clock in at about 100, I think. Um, the first one that I remember buying that I unfortunately don't have anymore is uh, finding a box set of second edition chivalry and sorcery for 25 bucks in a second-hand bookshop and right. you know, running home to open it because... You know, I knew that it was not, maybe not rare, but pretty hard to get hold of, especially right. a full box set. Mm.
0: What about you, Donald?
1: Um, I actually
2: am a big fan of uh, roleplayinggamegeek.com dot um, right. com for, for for my role playing uh, information, and they've also got a, a really nice database of games and uh, quite an easy way to track your collection there. So I went through the the effort of putting all my books in, to, so I can keep track of what I what I've got. Mm-hmm. At my last count, excluding periodicals, I've just nudged over seven hundred. Holy shit, um, That's a lot of books, man. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite the library, but uh, mm. but I consider myself a collector. Um, right. As much as a player as well you know i I love reading role playing games, and you know so the more i 've got on my in my library the the more i enjoy it so uh, you know i 'm never going to read everything that 's in there but i 've certainly read through an awful lot of it, and there 's always more to read, which is great right. um, The first role playing game I ever had got um, actually my my parents bought for me when I was about eight or nine, and it was the Mensa red box d and d right um yeah, which I still have my my original copy of it and uh, nice. it was a, a second hand copy uh that they that they'd found in a store knowing that I was into that sort of thing and uh right. uh they had to buy me some dice because it, the dice that came with it were missing so I didn't get the joy of coloring in my own numbers right. with the crayon or anything like right. that and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so, and that that was a, the start of a, of a lot of D and D playing.
0: Have you accumulated most of those books recently? Because at one point, um, when you were working at the shop with uh, David Rankin, episode nine, you know, the, half of the the store was dedicated to uh, role playing books. Did you buy a lot of them then, or have you have you sort of bought them subsequently um, because of nostalgia?
2: There's a, a, a small core of the collection would be stuff that I that I bought and played with over the years as I was growing up. Um, the bulk of it has has filled in in probably the last five years. You know, right. sort of a combination of um, actively using some of it, nostalgia for some of the stuff that I you know could never afford when I was a kid, right. and the fact that I have a bit more disposable income now. Um, so I'm constantly trawling you know secondhand bookstores and and websites and so forth looking for looking for old out of print games to. to fit gaps in the collection right so what's the best thing that you've uh, that you've managed to
0: track down and you uh, are um, particularly proud of owning
2: oh goodness Uh Something I picked up last week that I've been looking for for quite a while was the the first in the Gazetteer series for basic D&D, the uh, Grand Duky of Karamikos. All right. Um, so the Gazetteer series was basically a, a set of 13 books plus a box set that detailed various parts of Mystara um, for the D&D, basic D&D setting. Mm-hmm. And they fascinated me when I was a kid and because I, I could never afford them. Um, right. So, you know, read, read friends' copies and so forth. So now I'm slowly tracking them down. And they're, they're not terribly expensive, but there's not a huge number of them out there. And, and so that was the latest one I've managed to pick up. So I've got about half of them now as I slowly work my way through them. And I, I just love reading it. And just the, the ideas and the, the settings. It's my, one of my favorite settings. And so I'm always happy to pick up another one and, and I plow through them. They're great.
0: Right. Nice. Okay, so Hell Exists and you are sent there, condemned to play a certain style of game for eternity, what would it be and why? And this doesn't mean that you're going to play a, a certain system or a, a type of game, you know, like hack and slash, or it's going to be like creeping horror or something like that, something that would just be, it would be hell, literally, to, uh, to play all day, every day.
1: Uh, for me, it would probably be uh, creeping horror. Um, I've never actually played in a good horror game. Um, I think the buy-in that's required from the GM and the players is just beyond a lot of groups, especially as you get older and your role-playing game is sort of as much socializing it as it is role-playing, so there's a lot of laughter and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think if if you're in hell... There's no laughter in hell, (laughs) Farrell. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. If you're in hell, you'd be able to get that buy-in and and actually have a decent creeping horror game. So that would be my choice. <clears throat> so, you wouldn't be terrified to be terrified continuously? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about you, Donald? Uh, probably, s- style of game wise, old school investigation type games. So, there's this definite sort of new movement. Uh, of of mechanics that actually make investigation worthwhile and interesting and, and, you know, have some... You know, your inspectors and and bookhounds and things like that, you know, those -hmm. those games that make investigation worthwhile and meaningful in the game. But I'm talking like the old-school, you know you can't progress until you find the secret door or find that, that right. missing clue or figure right. out what obtuse idea the GM has in his head that you just can't puzzle right. out and the right. game grinds to a halt <laughs> Everyone tries to work out what, what the next step is. You know, or, or someone fails their spot check and that's it. You know, the game can't progress. And so, so that would just be dragging on forever. That would be my idea of hell.
0: Never, never finding that clue. So who would, uh-huh. you, be, who would you be playing with? kind of the flip of the four people you'd want to play with the most like what four people would be uh, would be there goodness would they be evil people or annoying people oh no they're just like not only does the game suck but you're playing
2: with the four worst people ever to play with oh that's a really good question uh i'll throw that to farrell and let him come back first
1: (laughs) i think The worst kind is uh, a type you've just discussed before, not the alpha player, but the one that just tries to dominate everything and keep the spotlight on himself. Right. And, well, actually, a lot of the um, socially maladjusted people that I used to see around role-playing years ago i think yeah <laughs> i, I wouldn 't want to roll play with them <laughs> well one of names.
0: yes, one of the, the uh, one of the people uh, that I would be playing with would definitely be somebody with terrible uh, terrible body odor they wouldn 't have to say anything, but they'd have they 'd have terrible terrible body odor, they 'd be it would be super hot in hell, but they'd still insist on wearing the coat that they wear all day, every day, all year. Trench coat. Yes, that's right. And it, yeah, And one of the players would be uh, Fran Drescher, and she would find everything amusing, and she would laugh like that. <laughs> <laughs> laugh like that continuously. So that would be two of the, of the four people I would play with. And I'll save another two for another day. What about you, Donald?
2: Uh, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Either potentially someone who thinks they're funny and they're not. Oh yes. My, my, my gut instinct is is like, um, uh, who's the Belushi who's not dead and isn't funny? Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi. Jim oh, Belushi. Yeah. Uh, a Wayans <laughs> brother. You know, some, uh, Carly, uh, someone like that, you know, who, who yeah. was constantly cracking jokes. Yes. And they and just they were dying every time.
0: <laughs> but not realizing it.
2: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: So you'd just be playing with two people. That'd be it. Donald would be flanked by two people thinking. Oh no!
2: No, I'd have to have more than just Jim Belushi and Damon Wayans playing with me. Holy cow! <laughs> no, that would be hell if it was just two other players. <laughs> it's true.
0: <laughs> they'd be trying to out funny each other the whole the whole time, and they'd yeah. Oh yeah, I think that is that is a special type of hell that uh, that you got <laughs> that you've created for yourself. So, do you have a? Uh, I'll throw this to Farrell first. Do you have a role playing? game soulmate and if so what is it? just a game that uh, that you always uh, enjoy playing and this, is, this doesn't mean like the book that you like the most but you know a game where you know you would choose to um that, that's always a comfort to uh, to play or something you always find
1: relaxing to play up until recently it probably would have been uh, legends of the five rings d- i just love the setting the system works pretty well um but now it might just be Apocalypse World. I mean, right. it's, it's got everything that I'm looking for now in a game. Right. You know, that really strong narrative focus, the, the evocative setting, the light system. Mm. Um, although it wasn't love at first sight. I'd, I'd, when I first read it, I was quite put off by um, Vincent Baker's uh, quite, you know, eclectic writing style. Right. And, and and the the actual system itself, when I first read it, I was just like, well, is that it? Yeah, know, right, right. How does that work? <laughs> yes, but, after playing it, yeah, that, it, it's got everything that I'm looking for right. in a role-playing game Less is more,
0: right? So I'm going to marry that question for you, Farrell. Again here with the uh, your final role-playing uh,
1: supper before execution. What, what are you going to play? If I wanted to drag it out as long as possible, it'd be Mage. <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to have some fun, it would be Fiasco.
0: All right, you play a game of Fiasco on the way to the uh, way to the yep. execution chamber. What about yep. you? Uh, what about you, Donald?
2: uh execution wise yeah fiasco has got to be a pretty strong contender you know' you're self contained all in one no prep required you know it's a it's that's a pretty good option or potentially and i haven't tried this one yet, but it 's one I want to bust out on my group uh dread um, would right. would be if you're going to go and get you know be executed you might as well be uh be a little creeped out before you go so <laughs> And, again, another nice self-contained, uh, right? you know, done-in-a-session type game. Right. So as soon as uh, you cause the stack to fall over, somebody steps
0: from behind you with a re- revolver. and uh, and uh, That would be awesome. <laughs> that would put a lot of pressure on pulling that uh, pulling Holy those, those bricks out. Yeah, As soon as I knock this over, it's <laughs> it's literally all over. You know, not only does my character die, but I die. That That's would re- brilliant. That would really have people investing in their characters, wouldn't it? Sure. So... <laughs> so uh, Donald, who's your favourite hero and why?
2: That's a really hard one. And, and it possibly says something about me, that my favourite villain was, was a big long list and my favourite hero was a lot harder to, to narrow down. Um, but in the end, I've gone with the uh, the Iron Giant from the movie of the same name. Right. Why is that? Know, it's a, oh, it's a, it's a, for starters, it's a brilliant movie, you know, and I've, I've watched yeah. it far too many times and uh, it's it's just great but you know he's he's a character who aims to transcend his past for something better right Uh, he's looking to help others uh you know sort of achieve their goals as well and has that uh willingness to sacrifice himself for the greater good you know to me that's that really is the qualities you're looking for in in any hero and Mm. uh and so yeah, the the fact that they've managed to wrap all that up in what's theoretically a children's movie really really speaks to me and touches me, so so that's my choice. Right.
0: do you think that's important for um, a hero to um, to be selfless? Is that one of the main qualities of a hero that they're putting a greater good ahead of their own um, life in some cases?
2: I don't think it's a necessity. But I think that you could usually describe someone with that trait as being heroic.
1: Right. So
2: I don't think all heroes are self-sacrificing, but I think that most people who, who sacrifice themselves for the for the greater good of others could be defined as heroes.
0: Yeah, I think that. Um, yeah, I think that. Well, at least for me, that's one of them. It's no um, accident that most of the people awarded Victoria Crosses are awarded them. Posthumously, and for those that aren 't uh, part of the uh, British Empire, or perhaps even those that uh, that are but aren 't unaware of it, the Victoria Cross is the highest medal that you can be awarded for bravery, and it 's invariably awarded to people who put their lives on the line for the betterment of others and oftentimes ultimately at the cost of their uh, of their own lives and To give you some idea of, of how difficult it is to be awarded. A uh, Victoria Cross, or how few of them are awarded? What's the name? Willie Apiata was yeah, it?
2: Apiata, yeah. yeah.
0: He was awarded one uh, a couple of years ago. He was a, a Maori uh, fellow from the, in the SAS, and I think that that's was that the first Victoria Cross in the whole empire that was awarded for for a
2: no, very very long time. Yeah,
0: because yeah. yeah. the majority of them are awarded in um, uh, during wartime. Um, which, of course, uh, Afghanistan, for all intents and purposes, is. But um, and another little interesting snippet for people that are interested in military-type stuff, there are, I think, three people, or is it two people perhaps, that were ordered what's called VC and bar, which means Victoria Cross and bar. So not only did they uh, one time put their life on the line, but in a completely separate incident also um, put their life on the line. And, and although I'm not sure of the names of the other one or two perhaps, no, that tis too, yes. Yeah, as um, a New Zealander by the name of Charles Upham. So, if you want to make do some interesting reading, real own type type stuff, then read up on uh, Charles Upham, who was awarded VC and bar, um, and actually survived both um, both uh, situations where he was awarded the VC and bar. So, Charles Upham, if you want a real a real war uh, war hero, uh, part, I mean, I, I can't. I'm struggle to think of anybody um, at least that I'm aware of that's more more fits the bill of somebody to receive a VC. Um, yeah,
2: Charles, Charles Upham is, is, is definitely a New Zealand hero. And, and as you say, you're right, there were, there's only been three awards of the VC and bar in history, and two of those, the other two of those, were both to non-combat um, recipients, they were both medics who mm. had displayed incredible bravery in, in rescuing people from dangerous situations. But they they were acting as as medics, mm. whereas uh, yeah, Charles Upham was a was a full combat soldier. Mm. And and the things he did, yeah. in his uh, his biography, <laughs> Mark of the Lion, yeah. is is very very good. Yeah. And uh, and it is just amazing. He he really was just acting completely selflessly for the for the good of his men.
1: Right. And With greatest respect, he was also a complete nutter. <laughs> <laughs> that may be
0: part of it as well, Farrell. Maybe may be part of being a hero is, is not having that sense of self, uh, self-preservation. That, um, but but, but to also uh, humility too because he didn't want any big deal made of his uh, funeral, right? Like they offered him a state funeral and so forth and he... Did he, mm. did he have all a state funeral? I can't things.
2: remember. He, when he yeah. returned to New Zealand, he, he declined a parade or anything like that. He uh, turned down the the government returning GI grant um, and just stayed on a, a small farm that the family owned out uh, outside of Christchurch. And uh, he was a very, very private and humble man.
1: Mm. He was actually case. really embarrassed to get the, the Victoria Cross itself.
0: Yeah, well, that's that often. That that's I think that's probably another another sort of hallmark of a hero is that uh, that humility. You know, the number of people that do incredibly heroic things, but then afterwards just saying that's what anybody would have done. You know, I didn't do anything special. You know, anybody would have done it, right? Like that's, I think that's probably also a a hallmark of of, of a, you know, of a true hero. What what about you, Farrell? Who's your uh, favourite hero?
1: I actually, um, I like all, uh, scoundrels and anti-heroes are always my favourite heroes. I just find them a lot more interesting to To watch, and uh, so Han Solo is probably my top hero. Right. And and when I when I role play, that's uh, often the kind of um, character I end up playing as well. You know, something with a a slightly dirty background, not not too bad, but you know, something going on in the background as well, not just a straight up. Right. So
0: for you, that was the biggest betrayal then, when when George Lucas remade the films that he didn't make Han Solo shoot first.
1: Uh it's one of the betrayals. I, I just hate the prequels. And I, I hate everything that George Lucas has done to Star Wars since 1984 or whenever the Return of the Jedi was released. Right. Everything since then that he's done to it is just an abomination to me.
0: I can take or leave any of the stuff, but the thing that... Yeah, it's definitely that Hans Solo shoots first thing, and I'm, and everybody is probably just nodding their head. So I won't go on about it. But yeah, that's that was the biggest thing because that changes who Hans Solo was or is, um, and that coloured so much of the other stuff that that came along later on. You know, I think that he was a, he was a really strong character, and I think that having him. Uh, Having him shoot fir- having him shoot first was, was really perfect. It, it, it encapsulated and, and set that yeah, character up perfectly.
2: There's a definite start.
1: character statement. Mm. And, and as
2: you say, it does provide a very nice contrast to his character arc over the rest of the movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, and when you take that away, that contrast is gone.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that probably we've got a whole bunch of people nodding. So let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so let, let's move on there. Um, what's your worst role playing experience and why? Donald.
2: So, does the uh, terrible session I had with Jim Belushi and Damon Wayans count? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I, and you, I mean, it may be such a terrible thought that in, in your head it's it's real enough to count as the <laughs> as your worst role play experience. <laughs>
2: Jim Belushi, uh, and Damon Wayans, yeah. <laughs> I actually can't think of one. I've I've certainly had plenty of role playing sessions that that didn't fire, you know, or that, um, you know, felt a bit draggy, or you know, I've, I've come to the end of them and I haven't really enjoyed them. But you know, as far as a, a worst experience, they've all got something to recommend them. You know, so sure, I, c- I can I can easily think of some of my best role playing experiences. But I actually, well, let's go with what then. As, as, as as the as the old line about you know same without fishing you know the right. the worst day role playing is better than the best day working so right so you know it's it's uh, yeah relatively speaking I'd much rather be role playing than uh, than <laughs> than
0: being at work so what's your best role playing experience?
2: Oh. There, there have been quite a few. I'm going to fall back with actually last Sunday when uh, the most recent game of uh, Apocalypse World I was running, right. and, and there were some really nice moments. Um, you know, all sorts of 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 things where the, the the characters are really starting to come to the fore now. You know, and and for a, for our group in particular, you know, with we've, we've played so much D and D. You know, we, we there was a session. In fact, we played the, the the last session, and I think there were a sum total of about three dice rolls. Right. Uh, no combat, right. you know. It was it was it was all conversation, and there were several times where, as the as the MC, I'm just sitting back and watching my players talk amongst each other in character, right? And it's like that's awesome. You yeah, know, yeah. That, that's 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 what I'm here for. That's right.
0: Because <clears throat> that game particularly sets itself up for the the players to sort take the lead, as you say. And if you set it up right, then it becomes a movie for you.
2: Yeah, as the, as yeah exactly
1: right. <laughs> which is, so, which so is that, always nice.
2: That's possibly not the the greatest, but it was certainly a great one recently. That's really sticking in my mind, and, and it's got me quite fired up for next session. Right. Yeah, I mean,
0: rather more interested in not
2: so much the specifics
0: of, but what particularly about it that um, that that you enjoyed. And it sounds like you know having having enough. Um, meet in the story that the players can take on their character's persona and play something out without ever actually looking at you for for guidance about what's you know what's going on i think that's you know that's the sweet spot for uh for a gem or, or mc as uh, as it is for for apocalypse so what about you pharaoh what's your, your worst role-playing experience
1: well i'm sort of the same because like i say we've had um sort of the same role-playing group i mean a pool of players of about, you know, 10 at most Mm -hmm. for the last however many years. So it's hard to think of actually any bad experiences. And even if I could, I wouldn't be able to say them because I'd pay (laughs) for it next week. So, But there was one minor um, experience I had with a different group of players where we were deep into this fight against a wraith or something like that. And we were nearing the end of the fight and one of the other players was just like, are we fighting a wraith? I thought we were fighting a white. Can we go back to the start of the, the, the combat? I want to do this over. Because he, he fully had you know, player knowledge of how to defeat a white instead right,
0: of right, a wraith. Right, right, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> It was sort
1: of red flagged the rest
0: of the game. <laughs> that's right, yeah. No, I don't want to do that. Um, what, the reason that I though, put that, that question in there is because a number of people in the past have discussed unpleasant convention experiences. Because whereas in a, a, a sort of a home game, type situation you've got there's there's the social contract in the game and then there's also the social contract that you have with you know the you know the the fact that you need to come back again together next week so you've got to mind your p's and q's and you know you can't annoy anybody anybody too much whereas at a convention game you can actually have blow-ups and you can have you know people being Mm -hmm. objectionable and so forth because much like on the internet where you can troll wherever you want you know ryan macklin was describing how you know he's he's played in games with with trolls or known people to come along just for the purpose of, of screwing up the uh, screwing up the game. But I, I guess um, for you for you guys there in New Zealand, you don't get a lot of convention experiences that that uh, that, that potentially could have um, could have happened to. So so what's your best role playing uh, experience, Verrall?
1: Uh, I'm actually going to have to go with last Sunday as well for just the same reasons. It was it was really interesting, and I got to break a couple of taboos that I've never done in in role-playing before. Um, I flirted with another player's character. Nice. And I mutilated another character, well, you know, slightly by cutting off his his finger. And I've never, in a role-playing game before, caused harm that wasn't just like a punch to the face for a few hit points. Right. It was actual, yeah. And, you know, it was just all that um, character interaction in that last session was just magic.
0: Right, and do you think that your that the role playing group has has been ready for that all along, and it was just a matter of you know Donald, you know, stepping up and deciding to run Apocalypse World, or do you think that you guys found the game when you were ready to find it? You know, you're ready to go through those sort of experiences or do those sort of things in role playing without it carrying over into real life? Like, hey, you you cut my f- character's finger off. You know, I'm not going to talk to you in you know, out of game.
1: Uh, I think. Um... I think we've always wanted uh, a proper role-playing experience. There's there's a few in our group that do like the dungeon-bashing, you know, full combat sessions. But I think um, the group that's playing Apocalypse World really are embracing the whole narrative-driven aspect of it and have been wanting something like that for some time.
0: Right. What are your rules for? And what are the best role-playing snacks? Like, uh, when you, like who, who, uh, who has to bring it? Who has to provide it? What do you eat? Um, do the um, people share? Do they keep it all to themselves?
1: Uh, we share ours. Um, as a general rule, we tend to bring something each, but I think there's um, special dispensation for whoever's house we're at and the GM running the game. If they don't bring anything, it's not frowned upon. Uh, we're trying to sort of keep a little bit healthier than we would have in the past. Oh, The bags of chips and stuff still show up, but we eat a lot of rice crackers and popcorn and, and right. water, water instead of soft drinks. Oh, you know? goodness. <laughs> in fa- in oh. fact,
2: Farrell has been bringing carrots to role-playing. <laughs> Baby carrots oh. and hummus.
1: Oh, dear. <laughs> which,
2: uh, which, is, which is delicious, but totally flies in the face of role-playing munchies. Oh, dear, Farrell. That's, that's, <laughs> that's terrible. So. Well,
1: um, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're supposed to be like having enjoying a social get together and you're uh, you're bringing your you know you're bringing basically the lunch that your mum packed for school along with you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, it's a problem. I don't eat healthily at work, so I've got to try and do it so you're somewhere else.
0: Force, so what you're saying is that everybody else that eats healthily at work, because, you know, they're just trying to have something healthy at lunchtime, you know, I'm just going to eat or not, and then they go, ah, oh, there's a weekend, I'm going to enjoy my role playing, I'm going <laughs> to have some nice snacks. No, because Farrell is being a pig all week long, he decides <laughs> that the weekend is the time to be healthy, and so he's going to bring along hummus and carrots and make everybody else miserable. Wow so um, pretty much. It's actually, <laughs> quite good to have bastard. the
1: contrast. <laughs> oh, one when thing about... really, one thing that's really working well is um, for our apocalypse world game. Donald has actually started bringing a, a jar of giant jaffers, and as soon as the giant jaffers are on the table, we're on. You know, <laughs> no more out of context talking. Right. And if anybody starts to do that, somebody will tap the top of the jar. And if we keep it up for a full session, we get a couple of giant Jaffers at the end. It's wonderful.
0: Oh, you go. <laughs> so it's the carrot and the, uh, and the stick there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but
2: it's, it's worked surprisingly well. I suppose I should, just for those who are not familiar with them, Jaff is a big chocolate lolly with a hard uh, orange candy shell on the outside, and the giant jaff is like the size of a big gob stopper. So right. it keeps, keeps the players quiet.
0: Right, it's like an M&M, but the outside coating actually has a flavour rather than just a, uh, a colour. Mm. Yes, one of the things I wanted to ask you, chaps, about was that that around about the time of the last episode, you were discussing the possibility of uh, of putting a game together yourselves. How are you
1: guys getting on with that? Oh, I haven't done anything. Donald's been uh, designing. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I mostly designing role Design. games.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm 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 very very interested in systems. Uh, not so much mechanics per se, but the the way different games approach how they're going to do things, and right. and so I'm always looking to to tweak and revise things. You know that's that's always really interesting to me. Uh, so recently, uh, so, so I've been been reading a lot of material, not designer material, just literally games to get an idea. You know, I, I know there's. A wealth of information about game design on places like the forge that you know i don't even know where to start looking at right. but uh at, at some point i should start you know and obviously listening to you talk to to game designers like like vincent baker is is really interesting to me as well um and so so that's you know there's, there's a lot there so so the uh what i've what I've recently done is I've stuck my toe in the very, very shallow end of the pool and I've attempted to write a fiasco playset, right. um, which has been a lot of fun. You know that's mm. um, that's really neat, and I uh, I play tested it for the first time last week, um, which was interestingly the uh, uh, my my playtest group was was my wife and uh, a good friend of mine and his wife, which was the first time that either of our wives had ever role played.
0: Right. And how did that go? Um, I'd be interested to to know whether that really is a good gateway game for um, for non role
2: players. As a objective look at the session, it was carnage, um, <laughs> and fiasco is normally carnage anyway. But, but you know, the it, it was it was hilariously funny. Um, which not quite the vibe I was going for with my zombie apocalypse playset, but right. uh, but you know the, the there were points where we just literally had to stop because everyone was laughing so hard and uh you know, not not helped by the, the you know some of the character names and things like that you know my my wife was playing uh Centrala unicorn the uh <laughs> who was a who was a without putting too fine a point on it a crack whore right and uh, and you know uh, Sam was playing a uh, major princess because she wanted to play a princess regardless of what setting it was. <laughs> so, but but it all worked really well, you know. And we got to the end of the session and and there was an entertaining story had come out of it and and here I was with with two people who'd literally never role played before. Right. And uh, and Sam, my friend's wife turns to me and she says, "Cool, when are we playing next?" Oh, nice. Well, and I'm like, a conversion. <laughs>
0: yeah, a conversion. That's brilliant. So, how did you get them to agree to play in the, in the first place?
2: Uh, both, both my wife and, uh, so Jean and Sam had both, uh, um, talked in, about what we get up to on Sunday night. They, they always have a wee laugh about us, you know, mm. with, with our wizard hats on and casting spells <laughs> at each other. And, uh, and, and obviously I want to try and break down those stereotypes where I can. So I said, look, well, I'll run a game for you guys at some point. and, and, and this was probably a year ago that I made them that offer, and right. and they were they were interested and keen, but I, I was trying to find the right vehicle to do that with. So, you know, a, a year ago my initial thought was I'll I'll take D and D and I'll cut it down to its basics and and run that, and then sort of six months ago I was like, well, wow, actually, there's a many many systems better better around for that, and then so Fiasco really does sound, you know, it hits all those key points of of, of a gateway drug, as it were, right. And and so uh, so I thought well you know I'll give that a crack you know and and see whether it does work for for introducing first timers and and apparently it did you know and in my research for other um, for other games that could do the same uh, another one I'm really keen to try out on them is Lady Blackbird yes um, which which you know comes similarly highly recommended as a as an introductory type game mm. so I'd, I'd you know love to sit down with them and 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 give that one a try too
0: yeah. <clears throat> I have, I've not played Lady Blackbird. Um, I have played uh, Fiasco. I've read Lady Blackbird. Um, mm. And I'd be interested if anybody has experience with both in terms of being gateway games. But I think that Fiasco... Um, I think the major advantage of Fiasco over, um, over Lady Blackbird is that there is no... That there's no hierarchy. There's nobody who's actually in charge. And mm. the problem with having somebody who's in charge um, is that... There's somebody in charge, then it probably means that there are rules, and because people are used to to hierarchies, they're they're more than the more likely to to look to you because ultimately you'll be the one that's in charge having with people that've never been played before, and that may remove some of the feeling that you actually can do anything. Like anything you do has got to be filtered through the filtered through the GM, and so I wonder whether that's one of the advantages of uh, Fiasco. So, so how did you get them started with, with Fiasco? Like, what, how, did you, how did you set it up, and, and how did that, this, the, the start of play go? Like, when they went from talking about the various relationships that their characters had to actually stepping into character and doing something, did they automatically go to the first person, or was there a bit of, my character does this, or I want to do that, and, and you had to sort of show them the way?
2: There was certainly alternating between that. You know, I, I don't have any real problem with people with a, you know my character does this or, or such and such. You know, I think that's a perfectly valid way to role play. You know, it's great when someone wants to talk in first person, but uh, you know, role playing is role playing kind of thing. And uh, and so there was there was a bit of both. You know, there was there was talking in character, there was describing you know what my character is doing and so forth. Uh, the as as you alluded to before, you know, fiasco. As a really nice way of avoiding that hierarchy, and that you don't have a game master, but you have what they refer to as the host, right? Which is which is just literally someone who's who knows the rules, you know. A yes. first-time player is the person who sat down and read it, or the person who's played before, or what have you. Right. So there's there's not quite that you know, authorial voice of a of a GM, hmm. but there's just the person who can help guide things along, you know, who facilitates it, stops you having to stop and, you know, flick to page 50 to figure out, you know, how this particular rule works. You know, it's just someone right. who's got enough of that knowledge to keep the game running smoothly, which is the role I sort of took there, because you know nobody else had uh, Tim had played once before, but uh the, you know the others just never played before right. and and so so yeah, and that that worked the world and for the first couple of scenes, you know there was there was a feeling of you know well, what do I do here you know and mm. and and once they clicked that whatever you like you know and and not just you can do whatever you like, but if there 's a piece of background material or setting that needs to happen, make it happen, you know. Yeah, it's. yeah. Uh, I, I almost think that fiasco is a little harder to approach for people who've role-played a lot right. in very GM-driven systems right. than it is to approach fresh. Right. So that when you when you play your first game of fiasco, after, as we did after years and years of D&D, the, the thought that... There's not a DM to arbitrate things. Mm. There's not a set story that we need to follow, and that there's you know there's no uh, limit to what my characters can do. It takes a little breaking down those mental barriers to really embrace. Whereas whereas I found that they once they got past the initial awkwardness of you know oh, here's here's you know essentially a game of pretend you know that we've we've not done for twenty years kind of thing. Right. Once they got past that initial nervousness and, and you know they were into it. You know, they they were they were making up things, they were shooting zombies in the face, they were yeah, they were going for it. Right. Uh and, and you know, adding adding things in that I couldn't have thought of in a million years, you know, when right. we when 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 Sam crashed the the bus full of LSD addicted army cadets into a building, you know, I'm like, where did this come from? You know, <laughs> yeah. the,
0: Possibly from Better it. Off Dead.
2: <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah. the uh, the line in Better Off Dead. Um, when he asks about, about the grandmother yeah, Some people will be, will be laughing uproariously At my, uh, at my funny uh, allusion there But So one thing that um, Farrell mentioned Was that the first time you guys played Fiasco It, uh, it didn't go particularly well And then the second time Farrell you, you played You said it went much better What was the difference between the two Was it purely a case of being used to the, to the rules Or can you put your finger on some other major difference Between that, those two sessions?
1: It was a different set of players, which is part of it, I think. But um, we were all very unsure of... of like Don saying, it was just such a completely different mindset to the way that we've role-played for so many years that it, it took a long time to embrace it. And by the time we did the second one, I mean, me and Don had then already had experience and we're looking at all these new indie games and stuff. And... Um, uh, yeah, I think it just, it just clicked uh, because we wanted it to, I guess. Right.
0: Do you think there's anything to um, what Donald was saying, that in actual fact, Fiasco is a little bit harder for people to play that have been in that sort of authoritative uh, position yeah, or, or having an authority figure to sort of filter all of your actions through, like it's harder to make that move, whereas in... Uh, Whereas for somebody that hasn't done it before, you don't have any of that sort of
1: conditioned, is this something that I can do type stuff? Yeah, that's certainly what I found. Um, Yeah, it's just such a completely different mindset. And you just wonder when you start, you know, how is the story driven forward? What actually dictates, you know, the the motivations of of the players Whereas, you know, in a, in a classic game, you've got the GM giving you quests and stuff. But it's a good lead into to games like Apocalypse World where, you know, the characters come up with pretty much everything. But, yeah, it, it, it does take a lot to get into that mindset when you're used to a classical style of role-playing.
0: Right, right. In the first season, I asked the question, how do you um, prepare for a game if you're a GM? But um, going to the flip of that, how would you prepare for uh, a game or how do you prepare a, uh, a character um, when uh, you're going to be a player.
2: Well,
1: one thing that's changed a lot for me recently is that, like I was telling Don, I used to come up with quite elaborate backstories for all my characters in classic role-playing games. Right. And I've shifted away from that and now I've just make a, a bare-bones frame of a character, an idea of what they're like, and then because stuff like Apocalypse World, you, the GM asks you questions about your character, I find I write the backstory as I'm playing and I find it an easy way to go. Like when I right. used to write elaborate backstories, I'd write them out and find that they just didn't fit in the story and I'd feel kind of restricted by them. Right. And it's up, and it's up to the GM to incorporate it, which is right. puts a lot more burden on them. But I've moved away from that and I find it a lot, a lot better and my characters are a lot more organic. Right. And why do you think that is? Um, because you're actually thinking about your character in the terms of what's going on in the game and how your character would have got to this point as opposed to coming up with a backstory and trying to shoehorn it into whatever the GM is doing.
0: Right. And so what about you, Donald? How do you prepare a a character for a game?
2: It's, it's, It's unfortunate because I don't have any great examples, um... Yeah, I've, I've seen, as Farrell was talking about, how the uh, dynamically generated background works so much better. So when, when I, as the, as the MC ask one of the players a question, you know, uh, why, why does your character feel like this? Or, you know, what, what was it in their past that, uh, that has made them turn out this way? It's not something they've had to think about before the game, and then try, and then for me to try and fit in, they can immediately come up with backstory that's relevant to them, relevant to the story so far, and and ties in, you know, quite seamlessly. So so to to you know take a, a concrete example, um, At one point, uh, Farrell and one of the other characters had their um, their memories um, exposed to each other, and uh, and so I was able to ask both of them you know about a bad memory from their past that the other one would then find out about right. which immediately gave them the opportunity not only to flesh out their character and make them more interesting but to provide plot hooks both to me and each other you right. know so so they both found out deep dark secrets about themselves that didn't exist up until you know that moment I asked the question, right?
0: Right. So the, you, uh, pr- you you made the situation available, and that encouraged the uh, encouraged the the role playing. I guess rather than being reactive, they were active and actually created something for themselves, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, and that was awesome because you know it gave immediately gave them as characters a more close bond. Right. It gave them as players more information about their character ongoing and it gave me as the GM a bunch of nasty things to to bring up mm. in future sessions, you know, right. so, so, and that's really nice, you know, and, and as Farrell says, you know, the the flip side of that, if I, it's great that someone puts the effort into writing their character background, but if they can, if someone turns up to a session with an elaborate backstory about their life in the Arctic mm. and, and, uh, and my game is intended to be set in space, and no one's ever been to Earth. Right. So, oops, you know, how how am I going to tie your your interesting backstory? I mean, it's good backstory, but how am I going right. to tie that to, to my idea of a story? Right. Whereas, when that backstory is dynamically generated to Hoth. mesh with the plot, oh, it,
0: it feels pretty cool. Right, Hoff, there's there's your solution. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, so Feral, yeah, D- Dumbledore or Gandalf? Gandalf. Why?
1: Ah, oh, now you got me. I don't know. I just like him more as a character. Dumbledore, here's a uh, – can I have time to think about that? Of course. Donald.
2: See, I'm going to have to go with Dumbledore. You know, I I, I like Gandalf uh, as, as a character, and I think that Tolkien's take on magic was interesting. You know, it's quite different to – you know, a lot of people like to like to say that a wizard is a wizard, but – there 's a really interesting article from I think from Dragon Magazine many years ago, um, figuring out just how powerful Gandalf would be in mm. d d terms and and the the upshot of the discussion is that he 's about a fifth level wizard in terms of what he can actually <laughs> do you know he's, he, he does a, he does very very little mm. magic in the books and yes. and i 'm not going to claim to be a Tolkien um, uh, scholar by any means, but he's like a starry, right? And he's like a mm. half god or something. Mm, mm. So so he's theoretically really powerful, but there are rules about the sort of magic he can do. And anyway, anyway. Um, but Dumbledore, to me, feels more relatable. You know, he's, I never got the feeling, particularly in The Hobbit, that Gandalf actually cared all that much about the people he was pushing around, like pawns on a board. Right. Whereas to me, it always felt like Dumbledore was very much torn between you know the, the the prophecies he had to deal with, and the the knowledge that Harry had some really really bad times coming up ahead. Mm. Compared to the fact that you know, if he didn't push Harry to be the best he could be, that that could be it. You know, he who shall not be named comes back, and and everybody dies, or or you know what have you, and and so he was an interesting character, but he also had that that compassion for everybody. You know, both the, the the teachers and the students. So, so I like Dumbledore, and and this is coming from someone who's not a huge Harry Potter fan. Right. Get anything to
1: add to your answer now, Farrell? Um, oh, not really. I just find um, see, I'm sort of the opposite way. I like that Gandalf was pushing pawns around on the board, but not using his inherent power so much. He his role in Middle Earth was to. To get the the free folk of Middle Earth to act for themselves and to um, to take hold of their own destinies without him really using his his supposed you know demigod like powers mm. to, to to actually defeat Sauron himself. Right. And I, I found him a compelling character. Um, I just I just didn't del- gel with Dumbledore for some reason. I'm not sure. Right.
0: Right, there's no right answer, so that's
2: okay. It's because he was gay, isn't it, Farrell? <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Here we go.
1: <laughs> Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker? Oh, God. They're both way i gets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go, Don.
2: Uh, I would go with Luke. Some of that is because I love Star Wars, and I know you're not a sci-fi fan, but but Star Wars is really my bread and butter. You know, that's mm-hmm. my my comfort food, both in terms of movie viewing and role playing universe. You know, so it's. Right. Uh, but I, hmm, I I felt that Luke's character arc was more interesting, mm-hmm. and 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 I thought he had a a better reason for whining. So if you right. look at Luke's arc, he starts off in a uh you know he starts off in in, in New Hope as a, as a you know sort of adolescent kind of figure and you know he's he's got an okay life but it's not exciting and then he he gets to find excitement and you know by the end of uh by the end of New Hope he's he's you know sort of embraced this this exciting rebellious role. And then in Empire, he starts to find out some pretty heavy stuff. Mm. You know, he finds out stuff about his father and his sister. You know, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, and then, and then by the end of, of Jedi, you know, he's, he's mastered a lot of his, but not mastered everything, but he's, he's grown as a character and he's moved on and he's dealt with some of those things. Whereas Harry, to me, almost comes at the opposite end of the, the scale is the, in that he starts in a pretty rotten scenario where his parents are dead, he's living in a terrible place, and then he gets basically handed Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Right. And he's told, you know, sure, your your muggle life isn't great, but you get to go to a school of wizards. Right. You know, it's the bomb. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and he spends the first three or four books complaining about things. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it's... It, whiny Luke is whiny, sure, but, you know, Harry's got no reason for a lot of it. And then by the time that he has things that he could legitimately be unhappy about, you know, the, again, no spoilers, but, you know, the deaths of people who are important to him in his life and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it, I didn't feel for Harry in the same way that I felt for Luke. So, what yeah, you
1: yeah, so that's
2: my answer. What um, you
1: fail? Yeah, my first answer was uh, Luke Skywalker because... They both start off as whiny gets, but Harry Potter remains one, whereas Luke turns out to be quite a balanced character. But I think Donald hit it on the head there that Harry Potter has handed everything on a plate, and he's not actually much of a hero in the books. He, he basically just fulfils his destiny, whereas I saw, I saw a really good article that Hermione is a real hero because she puts in the work, she uses her smarts, she doesn't have anything handed to her like Harry does, and But she still holds her own. Right. And Luke, Luke is a character, you know, he he is born into Jedi blood, basically, but he has to work for everything that he gets, mm. whereas Harry doesn't. Right. And I think that's what it comes down to, yeah. Right.
2: And it's interesting you bring up Hermione because uh, the same thing could be said of Neville, who also has a very similar character trajectory to Harry, but never gives up, never complains, you know, and, mm. and does some incredibly heroic things over the course mm. of the book. I would have loved to have seen the the books written from from Neville's point of view. Right, <laughs> well, you may be in a minority there. But okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, Indiana Jones,
1: John McClane, Farrell. Ah, okay. I wish you'd written these down before asking us. <laughs> I, uh, I'm I, uh, I'm going to go Indiana Jones because throughout the ho- the whole series possibly with the exception of the last one, he remains a vulnerable character. He gets the crap beaten out of him and he shows his hurt. Whereas John McLean in the very first Die Hard was like that. You know, he was crawling around with broken feet and blood and, you know, the whole nine yards. But as this, as that series progressed, he just became more and more invincible. Right. And yeah, I think Indiana Jones, except for the last movie... With the whole fridge scene and all that sort of crap, um, remained a pretty vulnerable hero, and I, I really like that. Right, Don?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because they are two quite similar characters in that they're both intentionally everymen in a lot of regards. I mean, they do things that that the rest of us couldn't normally dream of, but they're not superpowered. They're not, um, you know, they're not superheroes. They're, they're just, you know, average Joes with a good skill set and, and plenty of determination. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, as Farrell points out very correctly, the, the big downfall with the uh, with the Die Hard series is that by the, the particularly the last movie, uh, he's not, you know, the the, the John McClane of, of the first film. He's, you know, a, a character from a... Well, essentially from a, a comic book you know he's he's doing things like the transporter would do or something like that you know or from the crank movies you know it's just right. un- unbelievable feats of uh, feats of action hero-ness and right. which which is a shame um because because yeah that that's what makes the the first movie so so relatable to you know you can't relate to John McClane and uh Die Hard 4.0 or whatever on earth it's called right uh, though uh, by the same token uh the last indie movie is significantly worse than the last Die Hard movie yes <laughs> so yeah. uh, so you know but i I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with with indie um he he is a a more consistently relatable character over the course of the tril uh, the the series rather the quadrilogy his movies are better
1: mm-hmm. it's just uh, go with trilogy
2: <laughs> yeah true actually if we look at them both as trilogies it changes the scope of things a bit doesn't it mm. Yes, but uh, but and and you know, I mean the the, the cop out answer. But he's Han Solo. Mm. Doesn't get mu- doesn't get much cooler than that. Mm. Mm.
0: Well, then uh, this one may be difficult for you. Uh, Boba Fett or Tyler Durden?
2: Okay. Boba Fett is horribly underserved. No, no, I, oh. Actually, now that's a very good point. Is this Boba Fett including prequels?
0: <laughs> uh, it's Boba Fett,
2: however he is
0: most perfectly in your mind
2: Okay I love Fight Club uh, But my my take on Fight Club has changed over the years When I first saw it, when it first came out I must have been in my mid-twenties, I guess mm-hmm. I'm trying to think when it came out Maybe even early twenties Um and at that point, it, it perfectly speaks to the sort of person you are when you're in your mid-20s. So that realisation that, you know, consumer culture is bad and we've abandoned our roots and, uh, you know, we, we're turned into drones by the system and so forth. And, and on that level, it's a very clever film. And not to mention the, the, you know, the twist ending and so forth, which, again, I won't spoil. Mm-hmm. But by the time you rewatch it in your 30s, I still love it as a film but mostly because it's an incredibly efficient parody of the sort of thing that guys in their 20s think. Mm. And and to hold it up as an example of behavior is the sort of thing that you would do when you're 25 years old and that you would never dream of when, you, when you're a little more mature and, and look back on it. You know, it's, he's, he's come up with a very, very clever uh, yeah, yeah, satire of of that kind of juvenile male mindset, right? So,
0: intentionally or unintentionally?
2: Oh, I think entirely intentionally. I think um, I think the David Fincher is a is a brilliant director, and I forget the fellow who wrote it, but uh, uh, Jack pa- pa- Pahaluniac. I can't even Chuck. pronounce it, Chuck. Thank you. Pa- and I can yeah, I probably just mangled his last name horribly, yeah. but I think they're both very clever men um, right. who have in- intentionally. Uh, created a a very well-layered story right so tyler durden as a character is very good in serving his purpose as a role model is a horrible role model i mean the the, the things he is encouraging the narrator to do and mm. the way in which he behaves right. uh, are really unpleasantly antisocial in, right. in a lot of regards and You know, misogynistic and short-thinking, and you know he's not a nice person in in most ways. You know, now now in comparison, Boba Fett's also not a nice person in a lot of ways. But uh, Boba Fett A doesn't carry the the negative connotations to me that Tyler Durden does, and B he appeared in my psyche at precisely the right time. So you know. Eight to twelve years old, kind of thing, where he's just going to be incredibly cool forever.
1: Right.
2: So, so regardless of what he does, he's Boba Fett. You know, Boba Fett's the the scariest bad dude theoretically in any of the Star Wars films. And right. so, so, so he's cool, man. He's he was he was the go. Right. Uh, so even even if his his you know his death well, not death scene, but his uh, demise, mm, his being taken out of the movie in in Return of the Jedi. Um, is very anticlimactic and played for laughs. Right, you know, he's, he's right. still
0: cool. Right, um,
2: you know the, 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 he deserves uh, better for sure. Oh, absolutely. And the the expanded fiction that then brings him back because he's too cool a character to stay dead. Mm. You know, just highlights what a what a what a badass he is. So, right. so I'll go with Boba Fett. I like Boba Fett better.
1: Right, Farrell. Uh, J- yeah, just pretend I said everything about Tyler Durden that Don did. Okay, I'll give you but, a different one. Then. I'll give you a different one. Oh, okay, then. Nope. okay.
0: Jar Jar Binks or (laughs) (laughs) Scrappy-Doo?
1: I'm going to have to go in favour of Scrappy-Doo because, I mean, I I enjoyed um, uh, Scooby-Doo but it wasn't sacred to me in the same way that that, uh, Star Wars was growing up and, you know, the whole prequels of those movies have have tarnished the original series to me, and its <laughs> I just hate Judge Jar, Jar <laughs> I hate him. <laughs> so, for all the
0: marbles, um, Donald, uh, no, no, Farrell first this time. Um, if you had one role-playing-related wish, what would it be?
1: Uh, I don't actually know. I think it would just be to be a, um, a better GM, to be honest. <laughs> something as prosaic as that. Right. Uh, yeah, it's something I have trouble with, and... I, if I could wish it, that'd, that'd probably be it. So you'd wish to be the greatest GM ever? Well, maybe not the greatest, because then I'd have you know everybody knocking at my door. <laughs> just, just, a just a good GM, just a just a passable
0: GM. Yeah, that'd be great. That's 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 a terrible wish, Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> what a waste! Eh? I I have a role playing wish, and my wish is to be. Yeah, just a little bit above averages. <laughs> I'd like to go kind of to do something that that uh, that uh, most that a lot of people are uh, capable of doing without requiring a wish. I'm going to waste my wish, wish it on Donald.
1: That. For I mean, I got to think of some answers. Okay, all right. well, you think
2: of something. Think of something better, Donald. What's your role playing wish? I'm actually going to make Farrell feel even worse because uh, he's already a good GM. Um, so, so your wish would be wasted. There uh, you go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You're so,
2: patting uh, each other on the back You're being nice to him even though
0: he brings hummus <laughs> and carrot sticks
2: I've, I've really enjoyed the games that Farrell has run but, uh, but I think his big problem is what my wish would be for which And is? that would be an, an unlimited amount of time in which to role roleplay ah. um, I think Farrell's problem is that he's a good GM with a busy schedule Which means he hasn't got time to, to prep and, and doesn't feel adequately ready for a session Right, But if you had an unlimited amount of time whether that be for playing games or for prepping games or for reading games. So that would be my wish, some kind of stasis bubble where I could just, you know, grab everyone and and chisel out a four-hour session whenever we wanted to without having to worry about people's schedules and, uh, you know, needing to be at work early the next morning or anything like that, and that, uh, you know, I could stop the middle of my day and, uh, you know, just chill out and read a book for a while, you know, catch up on the, the... latest threads on the whichever website. So that'd that'd be my role-playing wish would be an unlimited amount of time for role-playing related matters.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Farrell Foster-Lynum and Donald Gardner. That's it for episode 33 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at HazardGaming.com Next week's guest is McGay Baker, and we will be continuing the conversation which began in episode 32. So until then, keep talking the walk.